for me, a well-pruned tree has a, a beautiful form unto itself. You know, it's just one way of expressing through my, my tools. By using methods from art, like the power of metaphors, how can we insist on a point of view that is not necessarily negotiating on the terms of the gas lines? listening to Our Shared Field, where we bring artists into conversation with people from outside of the arts. I'm your host, Austin Camille. Welcome to the last part of the conversation we began two weeks ago with eco-artist Aviva Romani and local lawyer and tree tender Marcus Ferreira. When I first reached out to Aviva and Marcus in December, the initial reasoning behind the connection was specific to the links in their work between ecology and the law. Aviva's use of artist copyright law to protect an ecosystem fit really well with Marcus's work as a lawyer who makes as much time for volunteer urban greening efforts as he possibly can. So they've been in touch since December, and there's an email chain that you can actually follow on our website, chat.squarespace.com. Their correspondence has ranged from sharing favorite books to discussing watershed restoration to brainstorming potential project ideas. And the following conversation takes a similar path. Aviva and Marcus wanted to begin by defining their key terms that have come up again and again during their conversations until this point. Why don't we start with ecosystem? One of the things that's become really clear to me is that an ecosystem is more than the biogeography. In other words, it's more than the things that make up a system or a habitat or a landscape. The reason I moved into legal issues was because it became clear to me that the judicial system was just as broken as the water system. Mm and for many of the same reasons. I agree. Um, most people think of an ecosystem as interrelationships between plants and animals, and then they take humans and, and place them apart from that. However, we are part of uh, ecosystem, and particularly in urban contexts uh, where, where I happen to be situated in center city, Philadelphia. We're talking about the assumption that Humans are the center of the world as though the sun were the center of the universe. Mm. And that's profoundly faulty. Um, I was thinking about the word restoration. What is it that we think we're restoring when we do restoration work? I would say that most fundamentally, we're looking to restore watershed functionality. Watershed functionality and then also... Going back to the original term ecosystem in the urban context, so in tree planting, there tends to be an emphasis on how it benefits humans. So trees provide shade and then they might uh, provide passive solar. Um, they might add economic value. Um, those are certain ecological functions. But then also, if you plant a native tree, then it's going to uh, provide food for the food web. What you just said alludes to the, not just the question of adaptability, but also something that Austin and I started to talk about before you came on, which is what do we value 
uh, when we talk about the function of a tree in an urban landscape. Um, my point of view is always the, the larger biogeographic matrix. So where does that tree fit into habitat ecotones? If you're unfamiliar with the term ecotone, an ecotone is the area between two different ecosystems. For example, how an estuary is the ecotone between the river and the ocean, or the space where a forest is transitioning into a meadow. Ecotones are really important because they're influenced by two different types of ecosystems. They therefore contain a higher density and variety of organisms. How far can we push the envelope in trying to reestablish some of those ecotones and microhabitats? One of the things I thought that we could talk about is um, you and I are, I think, concerned with very similar ideas but we approach them, I think, really differently. So I, I would be interested in hearing and talking about how we each do that. Marcus, would you like to talk about when you have a, an urban problem, where do you start? So before I moved in, there was a, um, a lot of forward-thinking people who had planted the first uh, generation of, of trees that were re-greening the, the South Street West Corridor. So when I go out, I see older trees. Um, but then when I would go into the neighborhood, I realized, wow, there really aren't many trees on, on the streets. And so I joined the, the local tree tender team and learned more about how to properly plant and care for trees. Um, what it is, what we tend to do is try to engage property owners, residents, and commercial um, uh, business owners and ask them, hey, do you want a street tree? While also trying to fight to um, protect the trees that currently exist. Because if we plant saplings to replace old, you know, mature trees, we're fighting a losing battle. What we want to do is retain the mature trees and then add saplings. Um, and then hopefully the saplings make it to maturity as well. It's almost like you're having to tackle a hundred problems all at the same time and then kind of maintain each of them as you're going. And that seems to be the only way to talk about working within and maintaining and restoring an ecosystem. Yeah, I think that's true. And I love the way you described your process, Marcus. Thank you. One of the things I liked about it was how um, hands-on and how human your process sounded. In my own work, I do tend to look at the much larger system than what I'm immediately in and then try to identify what I call a trigger point, a small point where I can intervene in the large system. But the minute I say that, I'm back in the kinds of territory that you're describing. You do that with research and talking to people, walking the terrain, trying to get a sense of how parts fit together. In the different types of research that both Aviva and Marcus do, there's a careful sense of focus on how to build empathy toward non-human living organisms like trees. How can people walking down the street or developers or utility companies and so on better understand the non-human lives that exist alongside their own? A lot of people think trees are inanimate objects they are like rocks. You can just tie things to them, uh, tack things into them. You go from 
that to, hey, just walking by a tree and maybe just being very peripherally aware that it's there. And then to an appreciation of, oh, these are all the interventions that made this tree survive and actually look nice. Um, so there's different gradations. Yeah. I think the work you're doing, Marcus, is really, really important and really inspiring. And I would be delighted if we have a chance to continue to work together. One of the things that artists can do in these kinds of situations is push to look at things from the other end. As I understand it, you're pushing to look at things from the on-the-ground level. The other way of looking at things is, okay, how can we insist by using sometimes methods from art, like the power of metaphors or the power of language, how can we insist on a point of view that is not necessarily negotiating on the terms of the gas lines? Um, it makes artists wild cards and those kinds of systems and something very different, but compatible with what you're describing. So I wonder from your point of view, how do you imagine working with an artist? Yeah, to me, it's... Um a challenge because you you operate to me on a different level uh, where I'm looking at it, hey, can I get a tree here and then help? You know, I'm adding a plus one and I have some nuances to my approach, but um, to me, art is our appreciation for the world around us and of each other. Um, and I'm not an artist, so that's my humble uh, interpretation of it. Um, but uh, to work with an artist, um, it's something I've never really done before. So it, it, I'm kind of daunted, to be honest. Um. <laughs> <laughs> well, again, one of the things that Austin and I were talking about was how do, how do we value things that aren't valued in the culture? So what we're doing right now is having a conversation. And I think one gets to a collaborative approach probably through many conversations. So the very first task is get on the same page with our vocabulary. And I think we've sort of done that. Um, but I, let, let's go a little bit deeper into that. You described what you love about art. Can you imagine how an artist might reconceive our relationships to our ecological communities that's very different than your own and might actually create an entirely different vision than what you're familiar with? I can imagine that it's very possible. I don't pretend to imagine what that vision would be. I think one of the things that, that this is um, bringing up or the possibility of art to make something more complicated. And I think that there's multiple roles that art can take. And Marcus, the notion that you have of um, art as, as something that humanizes and softens and also beautifies, I think that, yes, that is one potential space for art to operate in. And then I also think that what Aviva is saying where, what if instead art can be inserted in a space to really make people change how they see it or allow them to envision something different? I think what you said, Austin, about complexifying the situation really hits the nail on the head. I think 
in most aspects of our daily life and certainly in urban life, we operate on the basis of metrics. How many trees can we plant? How much is it cost? And so on. Um, art does start with the questions very often, certainly does for me. Uh, for example, if we identify a species of Amalankie, the um, serviceberry, how does it migrate or how has it been migrating um, across the Northeast? How does that change the uh, relationships between various species? How can we support that process of adaptation as, it as the migration changes? How can we uh, engage people in the life cycle of a serviceberry? These are all things that you do too, I know, Marcus. I'm, I'm suggesting, however, that artists can look at this from the aerial view of how do these parts fit together and how can we uh, press for that point of view rather than surrendering to the metrics. And I realize that's impractical in many ways because a corporation will say, well, come back with my metrics and I'll pay attention to you. I don't wanna hear about the bioregional implications of whether or not uh, finches are gonna use this particular tree. The advantage that an artist has is that very often we can speak to the heart so that instead of arguing about numbers all the time, we can also say, hey, look at this relationship. Look at how it affects you. Yes, absolutely. Um, one of the issues that we're confronted with is almost everything is, oh, if we plant X amount of trees, how much stormwater is it going to filtrate? In our region in Philadelphia, TD Bank, um, They've donated over a million dollars towards planting trees. And so, you know, once again, it's the sexy thing. It's planting trees. It's not pruning trees that currently exist that will help them thrive. It, it always seems like there's money to plant, but there's never any maintenance or, um, you know, let's hire a few more arborists to, to tend to the trees that where cities should have greenery, have these soft surfaces. We should be able to hear birds chirping, appreciate the, the random wildish animal that somehow makes it into center city, um, Philadelphia, and then to have a, a means to express that um, so that people understand and uh, can appreciate it. And for me, a well-pruned tree has a, a beautiful form unto itself. Um, but you know, it's just one way of expressing through my my tools, um, where I feel that having an artist, it seems like you have a vast arsenal of tools that you you use. Marcus and Aviva spent some time thinking through how they might like to collaborate in the future and what that work could look like. So I think in an ideal world, we would have at least six months. $50,000 and a minimum of 10 conversations to develop a concept plan that is about the whole city of Philadelphia and the specific areas that you've worked on and the impact on those specific communities. 
I think it would be interesting to do a wall size spreadsheet of all the hours and skills that are required to maintain one tree, make it so large that people can walk alongside it. How much does an arborist cost? How much time do they need to prune one tree? What are the effects of pruning one tree? What happens to the branches that get pruned off? Um, break it down so that instead of going for the flashy, sexy image of 100 trees, you break it down to, hey, this is the real world. This is how this works. It's about the arborist. It's about what chemicals you do or don't use. It's about how the tree roots can get into gas lines. Um, it's about leaves that fall and who sweeps them up. A lot of those things are um, what dissuade folks who don't have trees on their block and don't want them. They actually um, try to sabotage trees when they are planted by their neighbors uh, by killing them. Um, and so one of the fears that I do have about kind of laying out all the effort that's required to maintain the tree. Yes, it's important to get that to potential donors because then they could see, oh, there's a need to fund this. But then you don't necessarily want to uh, emphasize this information to a skeptical homeowner who may want a tree, but then realize, oh my goodness, I'm, I don't have that kind of spare cash. I'm not going to hire an arborist. And that's where tree tenders come in, where we do this stuff for free. I think the kinds of things you're talking about, about maintenance, is kind of like the same trajectory of a conversation between you and I. And how do you value that? How do we value the time that you and I spend together and just toss around thoughts and ideas until we come up with something that sounds viable? That's exactly why you want a spreadsheet, because you don't just want all the costs. You want all the benefits. This is the value of that tree. Because I think in every case, you could easily make the argument that the benefit of the tree is worth the investment. Yeah. And I think that's hard for people to visualize, actually. I think until I'd had a lot of these conversations with you, Marcus, it was, I know, difficult for me to fully imagine the range, the wide range of the benefits of a single tree. They say that people can't relate to a million people dying of climate change, but they can relate to one person's story. The info is there um, if we choose to go down that road, but uh, I wonder if we're kind of falling into the trap of getting back into like numbers, um, like, like, isn't that what we're fighting? What I'm suggesting is turning it around um, so I could imagine the information, the complexity of the information, the relationships of the information, um, specifically making the connection between the investment you put in one tree and exactly what the return is, what you save, um, how it mitigates climate change, how it mitigates air temperature, and put a, put a number to that. Right, and they even, um, I recall reading an article that um, X amount of lives would be saved um, if we had, if we achieved that 30% canopy goal. Um, 
Yeah, it, there we definitely can do that. There's so many angles where, you know, there's crime reduction. Um, there's statistics where if you play, if you have one mature tree, it I've seen between nine and fourteen percent property value increase. Um, however, that could be a marker of gentrification. I think that's really important information. There's something like only 17% that completely dismiss the information about climate change. But if you tell that 17% that if you use this different light bulb, you will save $50 a year, they'll do it. They don't care about the politics, but they love the idea that they might save some money. Right, and then that, so we can use some numbers um, and it's associated with well-tended trees and green spaces. Um, and it tends to uh, signal that people care here. And then also to, to have the trees there, it's now more welcoming for people to sit out on their stoops to linger. And then just by virtue of having people doing their day-to-day -day business outdoors, there's uh, more eyes and ears on the street. And I can imagine families coming and looking at those numbers who knew that trees could have such an impact on daily life and talking about it with each other. In short, the planting and maintenance of a single tree will add to the ecosystem of an entire block and by default, the city around it. How on earth do you get people to care about something like a tree, their ecosystem, whatever scale it is that you're looking at, at trying to um, engage people on, how do you do it in such a way where people are thinking about the next generation, a hundred years down the road? Well, um, as an artist, my experience is I have to follow my own nose. If I care deeply about something, I will find the form. The form will find me to express itself. So I don't really worry about what will happen. Well, I do worry about what's going to happen in 100 years. I worry about that all the time. But I worry less about how am I going to get there than I worry about how clear I am in my own thinking. How well am I conveying what pulls my own heart strings? Um, how honest and open and vulnerable am I being in the parts that keep me up at night and give me joy? I think um, you have the capability of thinking multi-generationally, multi-dimensionally. The standard American, with as we've seen with climate change, has trouble grasping the problem, what they're going to do about it. And so what I'd like to do is try to have it so that the average person can relate and see how these micro um, interventions can improve their uh, surroundings while yet contributing to the solution to the overall problem. If you're new to the podcast and want to learn more about Aviva and Marcus, you can go back and listen to episode four and five with their individual interviews. Our shared field doesn't end at the recorded audio. 
Aviva and Marcus have actually appeared on a webcast together, they've attended Pennsylvania horticultural meetings, and their email correspondence since December is now housed on our website. You can learn more about the guests and follow these projects at chat.squarespace.com. Music for this episode is by local musician Matt Engel, whose piece featured here was created specifically for this conversation. You can check out more of their work on our website. Again, that's chat.squarespace.com. Thank you to the Center for Humanities at Temple University for hosting this podcast and to our technical director, Eric Carbonara at Not A Sound Studio. This podcast is recorded in North Philadelphia on the ancestral lands of the Lenny Lenape people, whose presence and resilience in Pennsylvania continues to this day. Join me next week to meet the first guest on our third conversation, local carpenter and contractor Marielle Herring, who will be working with artist Sonia Blasowski. It's very difficult having a woman's body in construction for so many reasons. Until then, I'm Austin Camille. Thank you for listening to Our Shared Field. <laughs>